cocksober, negative cotton one, cocklebar. Oh, look at that. What? That's a fairly significant wheel and flare in quadrant eight. Quadrant eight? Might dust terranicinus, man. This well's gotta be at least a centimeter in diameter. Apparently you're allergic to dust mites. You, you know those little microscopic bugs? What little microscopic bugs? Yeah, you find them in your couch or your, your mattress, pretty much anywhere in your house. Dust mites? Everywhere? Yeah. What are you talking about? Where you been, O'Connell? Since chronic fatigue syndrome, dust mites are a happening thing, you know? Actually, what a lot of people don't know is it's not the, the bugs that they're allergic to. It's the uh, it's their feces, actually. Feces? You, you mean they're... Yeah, it gets kicked up in the air and, and you breathe it in. It's unavoidable. I've been breathing in feces? Yes, O'Connell, everybody has. It's just part of the cost of doing business on the planet Earth. Some people develop a sensitivity. We treat it like any other allergy. We uh, desensitize you with a series of subcutaneous injections. Really, it's nothing to worry about. So, Charles, we've talked about my allergies before on the podcast, but are you allergic to anything? I possibly cats. I think possibly that might cats. be something I might be allergic to. Uh, I'm lactose intolerant. Does does that count as I guess an that allergy? That sort of counts like a food allergy. I guess I don't know. Yeah, it's like intolerance. It's in the same ballpark, so we can talk about it here, I guess. But uh, any food, you no know, food allergies, just cats, maybe. Have you? You've never had a cat, I guess, as a pet. Yeah, I've never had a cat, so I, I don't really know if I'm allergic to them. But whenever I go and visit somebody's house that has cats, I always feel like ah, uh, just like a little bit less than a hundred percent. Does does that make any sense? Sure. Well, the typical symptoms are like scratchy eyes, scratchy throat, sneezing. Is any of that got any of those symptoms? Uh, a little bit on the voice, I can tell on okay. that. Uh, wait, are, are we only doing food allergies? Because I'm pretty sure I have like allergies during during the spring. Oh, just to uh, seasonal allergies, just to like pollen and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I have that. That works. Yeah, I feel like I'm, I've got that. I've got dust. I also have cats, and I am allergic to cats. Uh, I, you know, more recently, the 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 more recent cat that. Uh, as part of my household, I found out that I'm severely allergic such that I, I'm like asthmatic. So I actually have to have like an inhaler now. Um, but we talked about this earlier on the podcast because because uh, Ed, there's an episode where I don't even think it's like a storyline, but it was just like the beginning of a scene where Ed is like happens to be in Joel's office because he's got allergies or he's like going for his allergy shot. Because that's apparently another uh, a way to treat allergies um, is to, I guess you can get shots and get rid of allergies. Like they kind of talk about it a little bit in this scene. Because my only treatment right now is Flonase, which does wonders. It's it's working well. I think they're treating to see if she has any allergies, right? They're not yeah. actually treating the allergy. No, you're right. But he does say something like, you know, it's just allergies, O'Connell. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's just like... The, the common treatment, like we'll put you on some subcutaneous, uh, what does he say? Subc a series of subcutaneous injections to desensitize you. So that, I guess, hmm. is how they, I think that's for like super severe allergies. I've heard you can just get shots if it's like kind of ruining your life. But I guess it's like you have to do it over the course of months or years. I actually don't know. That's never been an option offered to me. So when I heard of it, in this episode that I'm referencing with Ed, I wish I could recall what it was, but he's going to get like an allergy shot. Huh, that's really crazy. 
And I was going to say, like, did he, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not a scientist at all. All I can imagine is that, like, they're taking, they're taking like, cat fur, just, like, injecting that straight into you. <laughs> just <laughs> like, get, like, a patch of cat fur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how science works, right? I think it turns out it's, like, the dander. So, from this cat, uh, she was, she, the cat that I am allergic to, she herself was allergic to fleas. So, maybe more like Maggie, allergic to these dust mites or something. Things like that. And... Uh, due to this cat's own allergy, it scratches itself a lot. And I think it turns out that cat dander, as opposed to other types of animal or pet dander, cat dander is uh, easily aerosolized. So it gets like pushed out into the air. And so it's a lot easier for it to interact and like really mess with my allergies. But this is thrilling conversation, not at all about (laughs) northern exposure, which... Charles, yeah, what is it that we normally talk about here on this podcast? Yeah, so ordinarily, what we're talking about here is the 1990s CBS television sitcom series, Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joining you with my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee, and I've seen Northern Exposure more than a few times, though I guess now that we're in season five, uh, I feel like I've only seen this season twice. Uh, so it's, it's a little more fresh to me, but Charles... You're watching every episode for the first time, so it's a new experience for you. Again, we're in the fifth season, so we've been familiarized with the characters. Uh, you know, every once in a while we get some guest stars, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like we, we're familiar with this formula, and um, yeah, we're about halfway, more than halfway in this season. What do you think about our, um, our current situation here in, in Northern Exposure? Well, I got to say that today's episode was a game changer, Ooh. I want to say. I, I don't think it re- I don't think we're reverting back to the status quo right here. Pretty sure. Oh, yeah. Pretty sure this is going to stay to the next episode at the very least. What I'm talking about here is Maggie and Joel's relationship. That's true. Major, it feels like major, you know, relationship moves between Maggie and Joel. And even in that first opening soundbite that we played at the beginning of this episode, uh, you know, the part that happens after that soundbite is Joel sort of broaching this idea with Maggie about like, what do you think of our relationship? Like what's happening here? Do you want to like take it a step forward? Like, do you want to go on a date basically? Things like that. Um, but we'll get to the plot of this episode in good time. Um, before we hop in, I guess I should read the credits for this episode. So we've got season five, episode 13, Might Makes Right. Might, of course, spelled like uh, dust mite, M-I-T-E. It was directed by Michael Vittis, who directed the season four episode, Learning Curve. And he's going to continue directing a few more episodes, I believe, in this season, but definitely in season six. He's got at least one or two credits. Um, Writers Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. Diane Frolov was one of the writers last episode. I mean, she's she's all over this TV series, but last episode, if you remember, she co-wrote with um, David Chase. Actually, I don't know if you call that co-writing because here, we've talked about this before and I always have to look it up, but do you remember, Charles? So the way it's stylized for this episode, Diane Frolov, ampersand, Andrew Schneider. Last episode, it was David Chase a-N-D, Diane Frolov. And those mean different things. Do you remember um, the difference there? I remember us talking about it, and I, I know it does have a difference. I <laughs> want to say that the ampersand right is a lot more involved, and yeah. that the and is like, I, I wrote it in one vacuum, and then I handed it off to you. 
and then you wrote it in your own vacuum. I want to say that's how it works. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I just looked it up. Uh, the ampersand designates a writing team, which is very common for Diane for Love and Andrew Schneider. They, they've written a lot of the episodes together. Uh, the word A-N-D means that the writers wrote separately. So I almost wonder, it was David Chase and Diane Froloff. So I wonder if like he was writing the episode and he just handed it off to her to finish, or maybe she had this episode brewing around and he like took it and started writing over it. Or I don't know. I always set him up to be the villain because I think that's the way <laughs> that many fans <laughs> of Northern Exposure view David Chase. To, you know, his, his effect on the show. But who's to say? It's it's a long-running show. We're in season five. You know, you might say that he, he, he tore this series apart, but maybe it's also just going in that direction. But uh, let's, I'm not, not trying to be a downer. I think this episode's a, a pretty enjoyable one, and I'm actually kind of excited to see, uh, see what you've got to say about this, Charles. But before we get into it, the very last thing in the credits, air date. The air date was January 17th, 1994. Yeah. So we got Might Makes Right. Uh, what do you think? Where should we start here? Hmm. Let's talk about the first scene, which is going to be starting off with Maurice at a uh, fancy concert. I don't think it's revealed hmm. where it is. Presumably it's somewhere in Alaska, but I don't think they're in Sicily at all. And right. Yeah. Maurice is watching this performer. He plays the violin. And he's really mesmerized by him. He's watching him conduct himself. He's seeing how he is just captivating the crowd. And at the end of his performance, he goes backstage to talk to him and says like, Hey, uh, I, I really like what you got to say. Why don't you come down to Sicily for a few days and I'll pay your, um, pay your way. Yeah. And initially, you know, this, this violinist, his name, um, let's see, I think he, he introduces or he, they call him Mr. Ingram. But his first name is Cal, so Cal Ingram. Uh, as uh, at first, his reaction to Maurice is, you know, a little more uh, snooty, maybe, or he's like, you know, I, I don't play, you know, birthday parties or bar mitzvahs, or I don't know. He says something like that, right? He's like, I don't do personal engagements. Um, you know, I guess he's just doing these these performances, these large performances. But it's not a performance that Maurice wants. He needs an appraisal of uh, a very high-valued violin, a Guarneri del Gesù. Is that how they say it? Yeah, I think... Guarneri Gu del Gesù. Is it Guarneri? Yeah, Guarneri del Gesù is what they call it, which is one of the most expensive violins in the world. I think that the uh, Votemps, I'm definitely saying that wrong, <laughs> Votemps. I don't know, how do you spell it? Let yeah, V-I-E-U-X-T-E-M-P-S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that one is going to yeah. go for $16 million. Wow. Oh, yeah. the, what, the, no, you're talking about the Guarneri? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Votem's Guarneri violin. It's going uh, 1.6 million, right? That's what he says in the, well, it's weird, right? I think it's actually really weird because Maurice says, you know, this violin's going for 1,600. And, um, you know, Cal Ingram says what a thousand sixteen, you know, a thousand six or sixteen thousand dollars. Actually, what I'm. It's been a couple of days since I watched this episode, <laughs> but Maurice, I wrote it down. He says sixteen hundred, and then he clarifies one point six million. In what world does sixteen hundred mean one point six million? Because it's not. Yeah, even, that's definitely not how you do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just rewatched the like, scene. 
1,600, right? If you say yeah. 1,600. I don't know. Uh, when I meant 60 million, I meant like 60 million in the real world, like right oh, now. right now. That's what they're... Oh, you said 60 million. 16, one six. Oh, 16. Okay. So it's gone for, it's like, it's increased by 10 times in value. That's insane. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> increased right there. I think what's really interesting is that Marie says that the thing nowadays is collectibles. And I think mm. that like, it kind of makes sense because around that era, well, uh, that was the Beanie Baby era, wasn't right. it? <laughs> I think so, The 94? Yeah. Or was it like a little bit later? It was definitely the 90s, right? Right. And I think that's really funny because uh, that, that attitude never really disappeared. Like that belief that what we have now will appreciate in that soon it's going to be like a gold mine right there. You can see it nowadays with like today's uh, internet ventures and uh, mm -hmm. various currencies and oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, links. And like, <laughs> it's just funny how like it always comes back to that. It always, it's always like this instinct in human beings that like what we have now the value that we put on them will increase indubitably and that someone down the road will pay for it. Well, they say art, I mean, I don't know, I don't know much about investment, but I've heard that art is a good investment because it just increases in value. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess like, obviously if it's an irreputable piece of work, like a work of art, no one's really going to care about, but who knows? It could increase in value. I don't know. You know, someone, I'm sure someone else has actually done this and has also done the mathematical, uh, and has also done the mathematical knowledge check on this, but I wonder if Maurice had just taken the $1.6 million and invested it into like, right. like, a, like a standard like S&P 500 stocks. Would he have come out ahead? Like, Do you remember uh, what he said the value was going to increase to? Because he did like throw out another number, like basically would double in value maybe. I can't remember um, from the episode, but he does have a plan uh, financially for it. He says two and a quarter. That's a 39% okay. increase in my investment. Wow. There you go. Which, yeah, I mean, we were talking. Go ahead. That, that's assuming that someone buys it, though. True. Well, I don't know. It seemed like, well, let's, let's continue talking. Maybe we just continue on Maurice's plot line. Does that sound good? Yeah, let's go down. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to Maggie and the rest as we get there, but... Uh, I, the reason why with Maurice next, I believe, um, is the scene where he's like meeting with the dealer, the person who has the violin. And mm -hmm. it seems that there were a lot of people sort of chomping at the bit to buy this violin. And the dealer himself is actually like maybe stepping out of line showing Maurice the violin. Like he's like, he, you know, if the other guy oh, finds out right. that I'm even showing you this. So at least at the time... People want this violin. Uh, it's true, though. Maybe there will be no, will be less of a demand after the amount of time that's needed to increase the value. Maybe there'll be less of a demand. But um, I don't know. I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, the, the reason why Maurice brought Ingram here, the violinist, is to, you know, get the bona fides, I think, as he says. Like, is it the real deal? And it really does. I mean, it's a pretty looking violin. I think uh, Ingram says it's magnificent. It sounds great to me. Uh, I'm not a violinist, but I think if uh, we're to believe this uh, setup in the episode, it should be a very desirable violin. Yeah. So that entire scene is Cal playing on the violin. He's testing it out and you can tell that he's very enraptured with it. He can tell that this is a very beautiful instrument and it's carried forward into the next scene where we see these two, which is still at Maurice's place. Uh, hmm. it's lit kind of, kind of in a special manner in that there's a lot of, a lot of brown to match the violin. 
Mm. Like the cabin yeah. wood is uh, that deep mahogany brown wood. And it matches with the violin and there's tones of red throughout the scene. I don't know if that's intentional or not. I mean, Maurice's cabin is generally lit in that manner. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I can say that it's intentional, but that was something that caught my eye. Very warm feeling, perhaps with the light. Um, yeah, the way you're describing it now, I almost wonder, is there like candlelight going on? I know it's late at night, so that maybe it just gives us that feel of tungsten bulbs, you know, late night warmth. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just look at it real fast because what you're describing is uh, giving me some memories here. Oh, yeah, there's lots of lamplight. Lots of lamplight. We see uh, the wood, ca- like log cabin walls, as you described, the bookshelf, like the color of the um, bindings on the books. Yeah, so what is going on in this scene is uh, Ingram is still playing the violin. He's doing like a little performance for Maurice, uh, and it's, he's, he says something like, you know, I could play this all night long, you know, but uh, Maurice is like, he's like, well, a fella has to get to sleep sometime. You know, he's like, go, go, uh, you know, go off to your B&B or whatever. Like, I got to go to bed now. But Ingram is uh, sort of infatuated even at just at this point with the violin. And he's he's prepared to just keep playing all night. Right. And Maurice says like, oh, no, I, I have to put it into the safe so that he can appreciate. Mm. And Cal says like, you can't keep an instrument like that locked up. It needs to be played. Yeah, it needs to be played or else it'll lose its tone. Maurice says, well, you know, there's two schools of thought on that. You know, it's still going to be worth a lot of money when it comes out of the safe. But um, Ingram brings up another another metaphor too. It's like with pearls. They lose their luster if they're not worn. And I had to, re- I forgot about this aspect in this episode, but I remember like this is such an intriguing idea the idea that a musical instrument will lose its tone or lose its, um, you know, what makes it so valuable to a musician uh, is the, the sound it creates. And if that sound is lost when you don't play it, uh, is that even true? And so I did a quick Google search. Uh, At least with pearls, it does turn out that um, if there's not like air circulation and proper moisture, the organic composition of the actual pearl will change. And so it will, the color will change with that um, organic composition, maybe degrading. So I don't know if it's true that you necessarily need to wear them to keep their luster. Like you could probably keep them in some sort of like climate controlled. I don't know. You could keep it in a certain storage to where it doesn't break down like that. But I mean, yeah, just wearing the pearls gets the air circulation, gets them out in the open and keeps them alive, which is a very interesting idea to something that you would consider maybe inanimate. But um, concerning the violin and and musical instruments, I didn't find anything super scientific uh, to confirm that. But I think it's just basically, I think everyone agrees that it is true. Like something about the lacquer or the wood of the instrument it maybe tightens up if it's not, you know, if, when a music, when a violin is played, it vibrates. And so like, it's alive, but if it's not played, I guess it's possible that that lacquer or some, something about its composition could maybe harden and it would sound differently. Do you know, did you do any searching on this or, or have you heard I'm this I'm doing before? it now. <laughs> yeah. I did not think about that. Um, well, I thought I was going to, I was like ready to believe Ingram, but then also uh, Maurice does say, you know, there's two schools of thought on that Buster (laughs) or something like that. So I was like, is this true? Yeah. Well, presumably let's say that Cal is speaking the truth and there needs to be like a upkeep on the violins or else 
it inevitably dies. If it does inevitably die, then like we talked about, what is the value of a violin that can't play music? The reason Cal likes this violin is not because it is uh, a Guanari. He likes it because it plays really well. And if the Guanari no longer plays well, then he's not going to care what happens to it. Or like, he's just not going to care about it at all in the first place. So who are the buyers that want to buy this violin, yet it can no longer serve its function? This is such a, I think this is a really interesting story point for Northern Exposure. Yeah, because we talk about this philosophical idea of like, what is the value here of this instrument? It's, you know, the musician would say, you know, a musical instrument is created to be played and to make sound. But now almost it kind of feels like, and I don't know if this is what the episode's trying to point out, but I definitely read it this way as well, that there's a whole other um, new sort of value assigned to the instrument that has nothing to do with the way it sounds. It simply is what you're talking about, Charles, this collector um, mindset. Yeah, it's just being placed into a gilded cage. Yeah, it's almost like for Maurice, the value now is more of like a historical uh, preservation of something. But yeah, it's a really interesting just idea, thought experiment of the original purpose that this was made for is going to be uh, moot afterwards. Like if you just lock it up and it loses its tone, as Ingram says you know, the value is gone. We've placed some other strange value on top of it. It almost reminds me of, um, there was another episode recently where Maurice gives like a baby rattle to Shelly and it's Mm -hmm. this fine piece of silver and um, it's a gift that's, you know, very precious and luxurious, but it's almost like, you know, the baby can't even play with this rattle because it's too valuable, but it's like here, it's more of a symbol of, of wealth or something. Yeah. Well, it's not like the rattler was endowed with special abilities or powers. It Mm -hmm. was at the end of the day, just like a very pretty looking rattler. Presumably it's not making a better sound than other rattlers. (laughs) Oh, right. This violin will go extinct if it's not played, it's going to inevitably become uh, just money at the end of the day. Because like we're operating underneath two assumptions. Mm. One, the violin will become useless if it's not played. Two, someone will buy it at the end of the day. But they're going to buy it, and it's just going to be for money. So Maurice is going to inherit a very pretty sum of money, and the violin doesn't go off to do its intended purpose right there. So yeah, it, it, it's a little bit different from the Rattler that I feel because... It's unique, and if you don't feed it, it will die. Yeah, this, as Cal Ingram, uh, I can just call him Cal. As Cal says, uh, he says he's never played as well in his entire life. He's never felt so musical. I mean, that could just be subjective, but we're operating under the idea that, yeah, this instrument does sound way better than any other violin because it was made... Uh, And maybe because the age increases its tone, permitting you continue playing it, I guess. But yeah, well, I think there's going to be a lot. We're still going to be talking about this idea. There's so much to be talked about here. But let's continue with the plot and see what that unfolds. So the next scene with Maurice is, well, is it again at Maurice's house or is it in, um, is it at K-Bear? I actually can't remember. It's at K-Bear. K-Bear. Yeah. Right. So this is the one where Ingram approaches Maurice and he's like, I'm going to, I have a plan to buy the Guarneri, the the violin. And I think he 
is also trying to once again explain to Maurice that unless he said, I wrote this down, unless it's played, it has no meaning. So I think he's trying to get that across to Maurice. Yeah. So this is where we have like a little bit more defense on Maurice's side because he's saying that he's not heartless. He's sent, uh, in his words, a native kid up into uh, piano camp or I, was it piano camp or is it violin camp? I think uh, music camp, piano camp. Yeah. He's like saying he's like, he is a musical benefactor. Like he's definitely put his money to that end. Right. He, he, he's contributed to it, but he bought the Guarnari solely as a investment. So in his mind, he thinks he is some sort of like karmic uh, balance in the universe. Like I've done a couple good things. I'm allowed to take this Guarnari and just kill it so that I can get some money back <laughs> on it. Uh, Cal, Cal does make like, you know, a good plea. He's saying like, the, if a couple things go my way, I can kind of afford this violin. <laughs> yeah. And I like how Maurice kind of parries him by using his business acumen. He's saying like, look, you got like a business equity, like uh, $20,000, give or take, and you're relying on a windfall. So you're really like, your odds are low. I'm yeah. going to have to turn you down on that. Like that's not how... That's not how we should talk about and work with money. I think it's Ingram is saying like he has like a, a relative that has no immediate family and this relative maybe liked uh, liked him a lot. So he's like, I expect to inherit a lot of money. But I mean, that's, you know, you're just, like you said, like you're relying on a windfall. So Maurice kind of like, you know, pushes that aside. I wrote down in my notes Ingram needs to convince Maurice that the instrument will lose its value, not gain any value if it isn't played. But actually now, just since we're talking about it, I don't think that's true necessarily because we were just talking about this. It's quite possible, as you said, that the next person, the person who buys the violin once it's appreciated in value, um, is not going to play it either and will probably still have a very valuable piece of art, I guess, even if it can't be played, uh, which is sad, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that that is the way that the violin ends up and not how art pieces end up because I, you can always look at an art piece with just your eyeballs and be like, Oh, I think <laughs> it means this way with me. So let's say like you buy, I don't know, like the Mona Lisa and you hang it on your room and you look at it. You're like, oh, I think it looks like this way to me. And at least it's like pretty. And it can appreciate in value. The violin is not meant to be looked at. It's meant to be heard. Yeah. So the next guy who buys Maurice's violin really can't show it off at all. Like the Mona Lisa, you can show off to other people. They can look at it. They can be like, oh, whoa. Because it's in its natural intended state to be viewed upon. The violin can't do that. You show it to other people, they're going to be like, well, play it. I want to hear how a $60 million violin sounds. I'm like, I, I can't, it died. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like you could, you could admire the craftsmanship perhaps. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not even the beginning of how wonderful this instrument is. It's the sound, which uh, will be, oh, you know, I actually, I didn't say this earlier <laughs> in my research about like, will an instrument, particularly a violin, Will it lose its tone if it's not played? And again, like that's the theory, but it's pretty much accepted by everybody that that is true, that it's just what happens. However, I think from what I was reading, in most cases, 
once a violin goes cold or dies, you can still warm it up, but you have to like play it a bunch to bring it back to life. I don't know. So there is a possibility, but at least for this episode, we're operating under the idea that it's going to die and just turn into like a lump of coal in this uh, in this safe and just <laughs> never make the same noise, you know? Uh, well, what's the next scene we've got? Yeah, so it's going to be at the laundromat, which has now become a particular <laughs> like uh, establishment <laughs> to the folks right here. I found it funny that Maurice is using the laundromat. Like, does he not have his own? I mean, he... We learned from a previous episode that he owns the laundromat. So I guess, I mean, if he owns it, he might as well use it. But I just thought it that was funny. That seems weird, though. <laughs> yeah, no, right. <laughs> he, he is like, so you don't you don't see Bill Gates at the, at the local laundromat. Bill Gates isn't at like the internet cafe with all the Microsoft computers, you know, like he's, yeah, no. he's at, he doesn't. Yeah. He owns a washing machine. It's not like they were like so expensive in the 90s. You couldn't afford one like a computer. Like, no. But yeah, anyway, in this scene, he's just doing laundry with hauling. Uh, there's a lot of washing and drying that's going on in this episode. We'll, we'll talk more about it as we get to the as we get to the other plot lines. But okay. what's important here is that Cal is watching hauling through the window. What I found really oh, yeah. interesting in this scene. Oh, he's scene, watching uh, Maurice, right? Maurice. He's kind of like staring at him. He's literally just standing in the road, not moving, like looking into the window. He's a little farther off, but it's it's odd. Yeah, what's really neat about this shot is that they continually cut back to it, but the way it's framed is that there are some wooden beams that form a cross on the bottom right section of the of the picture. So mm. there's a lot of imagery of wood right there. They could have yeah. shot the scene. Yeah, at uh I don't know how to put it in words, like a one-to-one ratio where like you're not it's just him. Like you're just looking at him. Right. In the distance. But they chose to shoot it to its side a little bit so that it reveals the wood crosses. And I think mm. they did it on purpose because it evokes a lot of that imagery, which is the same stuff as the violin. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But yeah, now that you're pointing it out, I guess we've got the log cabin. I mean, these are staples already. Like there's these are elements that are already in Northern Exposure. It's not like they're adding them in. But they are focusing, as you said, like with this framing of this shot through the window, it could have been maybe more center framed, but they framed it so we can see the crossbars of the window pane or, you know, the wall or whatever it is. Yeah, maybe invoking the feeling of that wood construction. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a visual idea that's that's at work here. Well, yeah, so um, Ingram is kind of stalking Maurice, it appears. And I don't think Maurice like goes out and like confronts him or anything. It's like, we just cut, right? Like he doesn't go talk to Ingram at that laundromat scene. It's not until I think later in the episode, Maurice is at home and he gets a knock at the door and it's Ingram. He has brought Maurice a present, a CD of Glenn Gould, the Goldberg variations. Mr. Minifield, what the hell do you want? Uh, I bought you a present. I just uh, didn't feel I could leave Sicily without uh, showing my gratitude. It's Glenn Gould, the uh, Goldberg variations. In my opinion, he's the greatest keyboard interpreter of Bach. And you know, Gould couldn't help humming along with the music when he played. It was sort of a reflex action. <laughs> Drove the recording engineers mad. If you listen very carefully in variation nine, you can hear him sort of... I'm pretty sure, pretty sure I've heard this before, only because the Goldberg variation sounds really familiar, the title 
And I think one of our friends, Charles Addy, is like a big fan of, I want to say, Glenn Gould, the Goldberg Variations, or maybe it was another pianist performing. Uh, I can definitely believe it, because according to their <laughs> words, he is the greatest keyboard interpreter, Bach, and I know that Addy right. likes Bach a lot. Yeah, yeah, so it must be this. I'll have to, I'll have to, um, I'll clip it out and send it to him and see if he recognizes uh, Glenn Gould. I mean, I'm I'm positive. I've, I've, I've heard the Goldberg Variations, and it must be... Glenn Gould, if it's if that's like the guy. Anyway, he's bringing this as a present to Maurice, and it's this has become sort of like a weird fascination addiction thing, where it turns out Ingram is like he just wants to play the Guarneri one last time. What does Maurice do? Does he just kind of like how does he get him out of there? What happens here? He just shoves him out. Okay, he pretty much is just like get go. Yeah, essentially, he just kicks him out. And the next scene that we see him is him sleeping in his car. Mm. He's waiting for Ruth Ann to open her store so that he can buy some dynamite. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, like, it's one of those things. It reminded me of this Simpsons scene where uh, Homer <laughs> goes to the gun store to go buy a handgun. And the owner's like, oh, you need like, there's like a waiting period of like three days. And Homer's like, what? Three days? If I have my gun now... Oh, you don't even want to know. And he's like, well, yeah, that's why that's it's like, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's what Ruth Ann says. No, I can't sell dynamite. Like that's illegal or something. Uh, but he's like, Oh, that makes sense. Well, let me just get two feet length of pipe, uh, four boxes of shotgun shells, five feet of ignition wire. Like it's clear. This is, you know, he just wants dynamite. How how does Ruthann not connect the dots right here? He's so shady. Ingram is so shady because she's like, oh, shotgun shells, you want 12 gauge or 22? And he's like, it doesn't matter. And she's like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? Like, your gun only takes one type of shell, basically. And he's like, oh, right, uh, 12 gauge that, or something. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that is like not... I don't even understand like that thought process. It's like he came in, he tried to buy dynamite, and then once that fell through because he realized it was illegal, he went for like the most literally at the line legal. He went for bullets. <laughs> like the he went for that. The joke would be, uh, let me get some of this peanut butter, a pack of ramen noodles, some bubble gum, and uh, four boxes of shotgun shells. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's the yeah. And then he he asked for like ignition wire. He asked for like a variety <laughs> of objects that like can spell no good. Like immediately when you hear that, like okay, he's up to something um, sneaky. And he he's sitting in his car devising some sort of a uh, some makeshift device and. Ed comes up to him and says, like, hey, I got the uh, got what you need. It's not like the ignition wire, but we got something that's like sort of sort of similar to it. It's like copper wire. And Ingram says something like, Oh, this is never gonna work. And Ed's like, Oh, you 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 mean you need like some insulated wire or something like that? And he's like, No. He basically levels with Ed about this like situation where I guess without saying Maurice's name, he basically explains like he's in this weird situation. And Ed is like, I, I think I get what's going on. You're having an artistic crisis. Ed mentions some movie, The Agony and the Ecstasy, which I think was about, he says Charlton Heston plays Michelangelo. And there is a whole conflict between Michelangelo and I guess like the Pope or some uh, Catholic dignitary who they were squabbling a lot about this uh, painting that he did in the Sistine Chapel. But um, essentially, we relate this story to this crisis that is going on with Ingram. I think he says something to the effect of like, uh, 
you know, all artists have to deal with a patron. And patrons, they they don't create any art. They like subsidize the art, but um, they're always they're always in the way, basically. He says something like that. Yeah, which I mean, you know my thoughts on that. Like you need a balance between the two, between commercial and art. You can't have like the artist be running amok, and you can't be tied down by the uh, executive, the businessman. So you got to look at it in both ways. But in his eyes, he's saying like, no, you got to like completely, it completely goes to the artist yeah. and you have to free it. I felt like maybe that's what they were trying to go for. But like if they had just like maybe dialed a little bit down on the death imagery of the violin, like assuming it's true, like let's assume that like the violin will never be able to come back to life then I'm more sympathetic to Cal, who is trying to do everything he can to save it. If they had said like, oh, it, it just would have been like an inconvenience, but it can still be brought back, then you can understand the dichotomy of what they're trying to say between like commercial and art. Yeah. But I think as we were to take it from this episode, I think it's to mean that this instrument is going to basically shrivel up and die. Um, but we are getting the sort of like side of the spectrum that is all commerce and not art because you know now what's happening at least with the violin is it's not going to be played um as it stands so it's it's totally in in the other direction of just you know money value not um any sort of artistic value the way this winds up basically is um you know ed, ed tells him the whole he, he relates the story from that movie the agony and the ecstasy um but i think I think it almost appears as if Ed just incur like accidentally encouraged this guy to build a pipe bomb or something. <laughs> Cause he's like, Oh, thank you so much for talking with me. Like I know what I must do now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it definitely still sends them down the path and we can see it play out in the next scene, which I didn't know it was going to go in this direction. He has turned his makeshift device. And I think he's placed it inside Maurice's, like hood of his truck. And whenever Murray starts his vehicle, it goes off. And I think he was planning on that thing, like turning into like a, some sort of inferno that would engulf Maurice <laughs> so that he would die. Yeah. What I thought he was going to do was have the bomb uh, explode in the truck and it would catch fire like it did right there. But I thought that would be the distraction and that he was going to run into Maurice's house and like, I don't know, I guess I just take the entire safe or something. I, I, I'm not too sure. I didn't realize he was trying to kill him. Yeah, I think, like, at first, I thought, okay, maybe there's some way he can, like, blow the lock on the safe. But, I mean, like, that would probably also endanger the violin. And then the more that I saw what was happening, uh, it was kind of clear that this guy is maybe losing his mind or, I mean, as we saw in the scene with Ed, like, he seems pretty vindictive and, like, he wants to maybe act out in a violent way. So... Yeah, it was like, man, this is dark. And I didn't expect that. Uh, I didn't expect that dynamite would actually explode. I didn't think they were going to do that. But um, but yeah, it, it, there's a boom. There's black smoke fuming out of the truck. But as you said, it's not like a fireball that engulfs the vehicle. Maurice just like jumps out of his car real fast. And he's like, you know, mad. He's just kind of like standing <laughs> there like, what the heck? Uh, the car doesn't explode in a fiery um, fireball. It's uh, it's just blowing out a lot of black smoke. But um, Ingram is like watching uh, this all go down from like behind a stack of firewood, and he like flees off into the um, into you know away from the house. I don't think Maurice 
sees Ingram watching, but I think he knows. Like you can tell that Maurice knows like what's going on. I thought that maybe Cal gave himself too quick because what happens next is that he's in his car and he's trying to flee. But to anyone else, he's just trying to start his car. And then the police comes roaring down the road. Uh, Officer Shemansky is back. Uh, guest starring for just oh, a couple yeah. of minutes. Uh, it's a very short cameo by her. And Maurice is riding with her and he jumps out the car and says like, oh, there he is. That's the guy who tried to kill me. And Cal admits, he was like, yeah, like, the, you know, I was just trying to get the violin. I don't think that he could have just played stupid, couldn't he? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it would have, I, I don't know. He probably would have eventually been found out, but like he he had a little more freedom, I guess, if he had just like kind of played stupid for a second. Um, yeah, he, he gives himself up pretty quick. But about Samansky, I was just thinking about this. Yeah, it's pretty cool that she plays, she gets to play like the cop character because now basically anytime that they need law enforcement in Sicily, if she's not on the episode, it'll just feel weird, right? It's like, because we understand that there's not really a, a police force in Sicily, and the reason why she first entered the show is because like Maurice needed somebody to come solve something. So they brought Szymanski from out of town and she's just been in so many episodes now as the law enforcement that like if we had a law enforcement presence that wasn't Szymanski, we would feel cheated. So she's got a pretty sweet gig. I, I feel like she's <laughs> going to be coming back a lot uh, simply because, you know, I mean, well, not always do does the law get involved in Northern Exposure, but... You know, she's she's there if we ever need it. Right. And she follows up onto the next scene where she's reporting on what happened to him, on what happened to Cal. She says, like, what's probably going to happen is that Cal's going to try to plead insanity. Um, maybe not even try. Like, maybe he actually is insane and he deserves to, you know, plea insanity. And Marie says, like, oh, well, like, that's lucky for him. He's just going to get off being sent off to... Uh, a mental hospital right there. Well, Maurice says uh, some fuzzy-headed judge will send him to the funny farm, and then he says, to weave baskets. But when he says to weave baskets, it's clear that that was like a re-recorded bit of dialogue, and we don't see, like, the camera cuts away maybe to behind Maurice when he says that line. So it's very possible that they just added that line or they replaced mm. a line. So I wonder what he said before or if they just added that in, but... uh but yeah, he says to the funny farm to weave baskets. I didn't touch that right there. <laughs> but what were you go go ahead. You were saying some more stuff? Oh yeah. I was just gonna say that like she interviewed other people that knew Cal, and Cal was always like a very calm person, never really raised his voice, but he did so in this instance because it was a crime of passion. And mm. to him, the violin was as much as a real being to him as it was as like a husband catching his wife having an affair. Yeah, Maurice can't believe this. He says, we're talking about a damn fiddle here. You know, the, what you're talking about, Szymanski, is people. This is a fiddle. But, you know, we I guess she's equating this to a crime of passion, as you said. Uh, she One thing I noted is she keeps calling him Ingraham. Ingraham is how she pronounces Ingram. Hmm. So I wonder if there was like, uh, you know, no one on set corrected her or... They, when they shot that scene, it was, I don't know. But that is an interesting, um, I don't know. What do you make of that? Just like this disconnect of Maurice not being able to consider this um, this fiddle as, I guess what's happening here is he just like only sees it as a piece of wood 
Whereas if we're to view it as a crime of passion, as Szymanski says, maybe we should be viewing this violin as having some other, just higher property, just higher value than just a piece of wood. Yeah, it goes in line with Maurice's characterization throughout the entire episode where he thinks of it as just an investment. Right. Well, the next time we see Ingram is in a, I guess, sort of like an asylum setting. He's playing the violin, but he's kind of like in a, what would you call that? I was going to say rec room. Like a mental ward? Yeah, mental ward type thing. But there's like people walking around and everyone's in scrubs. I think it's funny because Ingram's in scrubs, but he does have like a, a cardigan or something over it. Mm-hmm. You know, he still has that <laughs> that style. Um, but every, there's like some people walking around aimlessly in scrubs. And, you know, they have the sort of demeanor of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest type um, performances from these extras. But uh, there is like a two-way mirror that Maurice is watching. You know, he's, he's standing behind, he's watching, and there's like a, a presumably a guard who gives out sort of the exposition. He's like, um, Ingram, he, he really looks forward to these Sundays. If we ever have a discipline problem, we just tell him that you're not going to bring the violin anymore. And he comes around, he takes his medication and participates in group therapy. So I, I guess at this point we see that Maurice feels some guilt or at least can understand maybe this sort of like I almost want to call it like it feel it seems like it's a weird like addiction disease or something that that Ingram has the way he he um obsesses over this violin but Maurice is in a way obliging him because he's bringing the violin for it to be played now maybe we could say like that has a sort of like a financial motive like maybe Maurice is like well I better get someone to play this or it or it really will lose its value because the tone is going to be shot um but I don't know I th- I don't know. How are we supposed to read this? I, I read it more as like Maurice maybe feels guilty or feels some sort of compassion towards Ingram. And so he wants to let him play it. I don't, I don't know. What did you take? Yeah. I don't know. I have, I don't really have a great take on it myself. Honestly, all I could do when I saw the scene was see how like incredibly messed up it was. Because yeah, it's presumably dark. this was like a normal human being. Like they said before, he never really was an aggressive individual. And now the doctor is saying like, well, whenever we need to discipline him, we threaten him by taking away what he loves. The thing is, is like, does he need to be disciplined or are you just bullying this person? Not even just bullying. Are you going above and beyond what you're supposed to be doing to this guy? Because it seems like he was normal for a long portion of his life. He committed something like arguably was terrible. He did try to murder Maurice, but he did it because he was <laughs> he did it because he believed that he was doing like he was trying to save somebody or he was just overcome with rage. But I don't know. Does that like is there a before and after? Is there is this a line of demarcation <laughs> that like once you cross it, you are quote unquote insane for the rest of your life? Or does he like revert back to normal? In this case, they're trying to say that like he doesn't go back to normal at all. He's gone insane right. and yeah. that he, that's why they have to discipline him and everything. It just seems like they just broke him. Like Maurice broke this individual. Yeah. It's a very dark ending. And I, I, I agree. I think the way it ends to me, it seems like the message is like, we're supposed to, we're supposed to, I think in a lot of episodes, we're supposed to think that Maurice, 
is not compassionate and doesn't listen to other people and doesn't think about other people. But by the end of the episode, I feel like the episode is all the the story is trying to tell you, well, that is true, but obviously this man went like way too far in his beliefs and his ideals, and he kind of went off the deep end. We're talking about Ingram. Um, I think it's sort of acting as like a cautionary tale to be like, don't be so fanatic about your beliefs and ideals pertaining to art and music. You know, it's like, this is what can happen if you become overly infatuated with, uh, you know, should we call it a musical instrument or just a piece of wood? So it's a weird ending, right? Because I feel like we're supposed to be on Ingram's side, but then by the end, it almost feels like they're like, well, he went a little too far. Well, what do you think yeah. about, about what it's trying to say at the end? Yeah, I think it can be read in that way. And I I think you're right. I think it's supposed to be read in that way. But had they just, like I said earlier, adjusted the tone of Maurice to be a little bit more sympathetic, then I think that this could have had a lot more punch rather than being just, uh, uh, it just really looks cruel. It's a, I mean, it is a startling and stark and it's like a dark ending but it does have an he does have an interesting flavor because it is like bleak for Ingram. But then it's like, well, Maurice, like, what is he doing? Like, is he? Yeah, it's. I don't know. It has a very, you know, we didn't expect it to go there at all. Right. But it's right. also not. It's not just like terrible because I mean it is terrible. But <laughs> something's going on with Maurice too. It's like, does he feel guilt? Does he feel compassion? I don't know. I think it's because. Okay, had Ingram died, I think that would have been less shocking than what's happening here. Because when you see an image of someone being put into a mental hospital, they're losing agency both in their mind and in their body. And in fact, you're seeing, you're seeing like, this is a completely different character. This is like, uh, yeah. It's weird to see Northern Exposure go in that area, to, to see. We've seen deaths before yeah. all the time. <laughs> it, they're not even played for laughs. Like, sometimes yeah. they're, like, serious deaths. But, like, this one is just... Uh, it's bleak, yeah. Yeah, very bleak. I don't know. I still don't know. I can't say, like, that I disagree or I, or I think it's a bad ending. Uh, I mean, you know, I could say I maybe disagree with it, but I don't think it's a bad ending or I'm, like, I'm not, like... I guess what I can say is... Uh, I was definitely shocked by the ending. It's one of those endings that leaves you with some interesting thoughts and feelings. So it's not like a complete, like it's not a failure or anything of the episode, but it's it's just very shocking. But yeah, that is pretty much Maurice's plotline with Cal Ingram. And actually it's super contained, I think, for, for that own storyline. Like that's pretty much all on its own. I guess we get Ruthann a little bit, a little bit of Ed who come in, but... Um, Obviously, Szymanski at the end, but but yeah, that's kind of wrapped up there. Let's roll it back to the beginning of the episode and to our opening soundbite, the uh, Maggie allergy. So in that scene where you heard the soundbite at the beginning of this episode, um, Maggie is getting tested for allergies. And as you heard, she's allergic to dust mites. We didn't talk about this. We talked a lot about allergies at the top of the episode, but uh, <laughs> Maggie's like lying on her back for 20 minutes while the allergy um, test is going on. Actually, so I'm fascinated by this because we talked about it. I have allergies that have affected my life. Um, Thankfully, nothing like too serious, but I've never been tested for allergies. So I know that I'm allergic to certain things, but like I've never had this test. I was curious, like why does she need to lay on her back? But 
I think, I think like, you know, they prick you as, as we mentioned, they prick your arm with all these different allergens and see what you react to. But apparently you're not supposed to move your arm, um, which is why they have you lie down. I think for kids, they might put the pricks on your back because kids move their arms around a lot or something. There's, there's different reasons, but I was very curious about this. So I, I looked into it a little bit. Yeah. So my friend actually had one of those tests done on him uh, when he was a child. And the way he described it to me was like, Okay, so like the best way I can think of it is that if you imagine a waffle iron, <laughs> but instead of each of the grooves, it was like a needle and then you just like pressed it down onto your skin. That was like the way you described it to me. <laughs> yeah, because I guess they like kind of, it's sort of like a grid pattern of just all these different allergens. And I believe it's not, it's not like a needle pricking you, but it's almost like a scratch. Like a, I think it just kind of scratches the surface of your skin maybe. But, um, well, yeah, Maggie turns out she's got a, a sizable welt from dust mites. He, what, he gives it like a scientific name. Of course, I didn't write it down. But he does say, you know, it's actually uh, unlike what most people think, you're actually allergic to the feces of the dust mite. Like they poop and then it goes up in the air and that gets, you know, gets all in your allergies <laughs> And, um, you know, she can't believe this. And she's like, obviously starting to freak out a little bit. Joel says it's part of the cost of doing business on the planet earth. You know, we are surrounded constantly by dust mite feces by a lot of stuff. Right. And that's when we go into like the big crux of the episode, which is where Joel kind of timidly asks Maggie out. But right. Maggie is super concerned about the mites and she doesn't hear him at all. Yeah. Does he give her like a pamphlet or something? Like she's definitely distracted. I think she, or she's maybe looking at, isn't she looking at something? Yeah. She's looking at a pamphlet. Okay. Yeah. She's like definitely like reading something and he's like, you know, isn't it weird? Like we've never really gone out. Why don't we go out? You know, like we, we should give it a try or something. And she's like, as you said, she's not really hearing him. She says, you, she says something like, you tell me there's like, I have all these insects in my house. And Joel breaks. He's like, well, they're technically, they're arachnids, not insects. But, you know, look, like, just like, never mind. Like, uh, he, it's not working. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's fun to watch as a as the audience because you're like, oh, man, like, it's, it's so close. Joel's got the courage. Like, are they actually going to, you know, will they, won't they? Is it going to happen? But, of course, uh, we got we got a lot of dust mites in the way of this, of this will they, won't they. Right. I guess we can just interweave both of the plot lines because they kind of come together at the end. But what happens immediately after this is a scene following Chris. And right. Chris is trying to, I guess, weld? Construct? Yeah, he's doing like metal sculpture, but you're right, welding. He's doing like some, it's like a little, what do you call that? I don't know, like just a little torch thing. He's doing the welding thing. Right. <laughs> With whatever that instrument he's trying is. To, <laughs> he's trying to build uh, a replica of this nude model using this amalgamation of copper and metal and various pieces. He's like also slamming the sculpture with a mallet. Like, you know, he'll, he'll do the welding, then he'll turn off the torch and then just like smack it with a, with the mallet to try to bend it into position. The music also, the music in the background, is kind of cheesy rock and roll, just like, I don't know how you would describe that, but, um, you know, kind of Muzak in a way, just like, some cheesy dad rock or something. <laughs> um, but he's complaining that he can't find the it, the why, the touchstone. 
you know, and he, I like, I actually was looking up all of these um, artistic references that he throws out. He's like, you know, the Ingrace, Ing, Ong, oh, actually, I wrote it, I wrote it down, but I think the pronunciation is Ong or Ingra, Angra. It's like I-N-G-R-E-S, hmm. Angra's Odalisque, like this um, uh, famous painting and it's got like a very curved, it's like a woman with like a curved spine. He also um, references Rodin's Broken Nose, which is a sculpture of a, you know, a man with a broken nose. Monk's Screaming Face, you know, like The Scream, I think you can, uh, do you remember those like, sorry, I don't know why I thought of this, like the Glade plug-in commercials? Where it's like plug it in. Glade? Yeah, Glade plugins. You know those little like air fresheners that you plug in? Oh, yeah. And I it had the commercial style. Wasn't there one with like Monk's Scream in it? Why am I thinking of this? Do you have the, Do you have like a link? Oh my God. I'm trying to watch a YouTube ad for this Glade plugin ad. And of course there's an ad <laughs> before I can watch the ad. <laughs> <laughs> Plug-in. For lasting freshness, don't forget to refill your Glade plugins. Plug it in, plug it in. I didn't remember this, but it's basically we're in a tight shot on like a man's belly, basically, and he's got his tie on, and the tie that's like draped over his belly is uh, an artistic rendition of Monk's Scream, that famous painting. And uh, someone standing next to him is holding a cigar. The cigar smoke is blowing onto the tie. And the the scream guy and in the tie reacts to the smell of the smoke, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, you better plug in that that Glade plug-in." And there's a jingle that goes with it, and the you know the little figure on the tie is like dancing. It's this animation that happens on. I don't know why. There's obviously a lot of commercials for this Glade plug-in, and that's the one I remember. <laughs> I, I've never seen this. This definitely seems very '90s. Though. Yeah, like yeah. '90s, 2000, early-ish. Yeah, let's see. The compilation video is 1990s Glade plugins refill commercial compilation. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, why did we? Oh, yeah, Monk's Scream is also referenced by Chris. That's the last one I got there. Yeah. So, Chris is basically trying to create something and he's having some roadblocks in his creativity right here. Yeah, he's missing like the, the thesis, the idea behind it. He's, I think he, he originally thought. He was going to use the neck, like the woman's neck, as sort of a centerpiece or something to focus on. Like we talked about Rodin's broken nose, the curving spine of the odalisque, the screaming face in Monk's Scream. But he says, why the neck? It's arbitrary. The neck has no meaning. It's a myth. I like that he says the neck is a myth. I don't even know what that means. But um, Yeah, and then he, he leaves the scene, like right after <laughs> yeah. that. She's, yeah, he leaves this woman sitting, this this um, this model just sitting there. But uh, he goes to um, immediately to go buy some peanut brittle in large quantity at Ruthann's store. She says something like, oh, you know, what is it again? Like artistic, uh, right, artist, artist block right now? Like you, because apparently he... He eats peanut brittle a lot when he's when he's stuck like this. Uh, even now, like as he's buying the peanut brittle, he like unwraps it before he even pays and starts chomping down. Have you had peanut brittle before? Yeah, it's is it not unlike um, pralines? It's pretty much the pralines same, but pralines not? is just uh, pralines is just pecans, I think. But peanut yeah, brittle is like, peanuts, maybe. I maybe the uh, pralines are like a little bit more sweeter. Okay. 
I want to say. Yeah, because he does say, Chris says like, I don't know, maybe it's the yin and yang of the sweetness and the saltiness of the peanut brittle, uh, the violence, the way it shreds up the soft palate of your mouth. Um, so <laughs> whatever, man, like I just eat the peanut brittle, you know, to like make it into, um, into a whole. Yeah. It like draws meaning yeah. from it. <laughs> but of course it's Chris. Like we want, that's what we want him to do too. You know, like that's, he needs to do stuff like that. So. Right. And then Maggie comes into the store. She's looking for any literature on mites and she finds a book. And I initially thought the scene wasn't needed, but then I realized like the reason it's needed is because she shows a picture of the mite and yeah. we as an audience member need to see what it might looks like so that the future scenes can have a harder impact. So that's why <laughs> that's they true. have this. Yeah. We get a lot of visual representations of mites throughout this episode. So it is important. You're right. That the, um, that the audience kind of understand what a mite looks like. Uh, she indeed finds uh, like a mic- microscope enhanced photo of a mite. Uh, so it looks larger than it, you know, would in real life, obviously. But she says something like 7,000 mites can live, like up to 7,000 mites can live in a single ounce of dust, which is a lot, you know, to think about. But that's basically that scene. When we come back to, let's see, is it Maggie or Chris next? Maggie is vacuuming her couch and um, Joel comes to visit her. He's basically like, you know, I was trying to say something um, in the office and it kind of went over, you know, you you didn't really hear me. I've been wanting to make it a point to separate my professional life and like the personal stuff. So that's why I'm here in your house now. And, uh, you know, a long-winded way of basically he asks Maggie out and, It's nice because I think now she, you know, for the moment, she is now like taken away from her concern with the dust mites and she agrees. She says, yeah, sure. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty, that's pretty much what happens. Like it's pretty matter of fact, but it's a nice, uh, I I like that she has that sort of escape for a moment from the dust mites. Did it, uh, did it look like she had a gun in her hand whenever she was talking to Joel? (laughs) Is it because the vacuum that she uses? Um, yes, <laughs> like a it rifle. Because like, it doesn't have a. It longer... looks like a rifle. <laughs> I'm like, go I kept look at thinking it, it was a gun. I was like, "Is she? <laughs> is she like house cleaning? She just picked up her gun." <laughs> She's like taking extermination to a yeah to a different level. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm watching yeah. the back. Oh yeah, she's kind of sitting with it in her lap too. Right. It so is. It looks, yeah, and the way she's holstering it, it kind of looks like a rifle. <laughs> I seriously thought it was a rifle, like an Elmer Fudd rifle. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. Which, you know, like, I wonder, sorry that we're focused. There's no reason for us to focus on this, but we got to do it now. Like if it was just me and someone came to my house and wanted to start talking to me while I was vacuuming, I think I would just set the vacuum down. Like I wouldn't put it in my lap, but maybe, you know, like this is a, this is TV. So we need to like, you know, we want to show like, oh, Maggie was vacuuming. Like keep that vacuum on screen. Like if Maggie just puts the vacuum down, it probably leaves the frame. And yeah. And there's also like just playing off of the text of being like, Maggie is cleaning her apartment. The more we see the vacuum cleaner, the more the imagery of her cleaning the apartment sparks into our mind. It's the visual language of it, right? Right. On a little bit of a tangent on that, you always see this sometimes on the internet whenever you're reading about uh, so-called plot holes. Somebody will always inevitably say like, oh man, like 
I can't believe that the guy ran downstairs and there was this huge breakfast waiting for them and he took one <laughs> bite and left. Super unrealistic. That's like giant plot hole. I that takes me out of my suspension of disbelief. It's silly, it's stupid, it's not realistic. The point isn't to show that. The point is just to like very quickly reveal that like he lives in a nuclear family, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> it's got a mother and a father, and they're not poor. They can at least afford breakfast. That's what the scene is just trying to convey very quickly. Like, we don't, don't be snooty about this. <laughs> don't try to find like every single nook and crevice to critique a movie about. And I, I, I guess it's like what I'm taking away from this is that like Maggie's got the vacuum cleaner just so she can reveal to the audience and just keep updating us with our eyes is that like she's cleaning up her place. She's trying to get rid of the mites. Definitely. Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're going to go on a date now, it seems. And Joel takes his, uh, well, he takes Maggie's rug on the way out. She's like, I'm, I don't want this anymore. It's just going to collect more dust mites. So gets that out of there. And Maggie in the next scene goes to celebrate at the brick. Uh, she's done a, spent her whole day cleaning. And I think now she even has like a dehumidifier. She says something like dust mites aren't able to live below 50% humidity. So dehumidifying her uh, her house is basically just going to kill them all, which is, um, yeah, that, that's pretty good. It's pretty easy. Um, her drink order at the Brick is a Cure Royale. Never heard of that, but it's champagne and uh, creme de cassis, which is, I guess, like a black uh, currant liqueur. But, oh, this is kind of where Maggie's plotline and Chris's plotline starts to connect. Because Chris, again, with his artist's block, is uh, just sitting at the bar at the brick while Maggie's enjoying her celebration drink. And I think he's like even like playing with his potatoes and stuff. Like he's just kind of playing <laughs> with his food. And he, um, you know, he he's talking to Maggie about these dust mites. And Chris dreams up this whole idea of like, you know, there's thousands of dust mites that live in and are like on, on our surfaces and around us. And... Um, you know, you, you must, you could, you could think of these dust mites like a whole civilization. To them, we're like the the gods in the heavens or whatever. We we decide to like mass genocide, kill them with a dehumidifier, I guess. But honestly, Maggie like literally gives no. F- she's just like, whatever. I'm gonna go enjoy this drink. I'm out. Like she just leaves immediately. Yeah. And he's like trying to trying to go on about that. Yeah. So Chris is trying to implant the idea onto Maggie that like there is like a grand scheme of the universe and that we are ultimately just dust in the eyes of the gods up above. And it even ends in a similar theme where Chris is playing with his food in the same way that you would imagine a omnipotent creator would play with the denizens of the universe. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, he's like kind of, he's in the clouds as it were and just kind of like forming castles out of this, uh, out of these mashed potatoes. But yeah, as you said, it's kind of this comparison that we are, you know, similarly, Chris is putting himself in the shoes of this dust mite civilization, you know? Right. And we carry forward to Maggie and Joel's first date. It's going to be at Maggie's place. She's cooking up some nice dinner for them. And she talks with Joel about starting a clean slate. She's really happy because she's saying, like, it took us a long time to get here. But now that we're here... We can finally begin. 
And I think it's really interesting that she uses the word clean slate because, like I said earlier in the episode, there's lots of imagery or actions involving cleaning. We see it with Holling and Maurice at the laundromat. We see them trying to clean their clothes. We see that Holling takes out some of his clothing and he smells it and he says, it still smells like Shelly. Kind of evoking the idea that you can't really get rid of anything. Like it's always going to be there. Yeah. That almost also makes me think of like the whole idea of the violin. Like, you know, it will shrivel up and lose its tone. but Maybe you can coax out sound. Uh, At least I guess with the resolution of this episode, you know, Ingram is still going to be playing it, but in a whole different broken capacity, I guess. But um, (laughs) that's interesting. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of cleaning motif. And I didn't think about that, the way that um, we we can clean, but there's still some remnants of what was there. But about the date, Maggie is making paella in a pot on the stove. Um, I also wanted to say Joel calls Maggie's apartment spare and minimalist, which I think is a product of the script more than the, you know, the set dressing, because it doesn't look very, I mean, there's not a couch there anymore. Like she got rid of her couch. So I I guess I can see what, what you're saying, but it seems pretty, pretty furnished and adorned. I think it's a nice looking apartment, but um, maybe that was more an idea that they put down on paper. It just never really got realized. Mm. But I like that it's cozy. I like that it's not uh, <laughs> just an empty room with them sitting in the kitchen. <laughs> but I guess their chemistry probably could have made that even like uh, inviting feeling. But um, yeah, I think it like kind of cuts away to Maurice and some other stuff. But then when it cuts back, we're still on the date night, like Joel and Maggie I think the way we cut in is Joel's like, I had no idea that you were a Dark Shadows junkie. Uh, Dark Shadows is that like old TV show about like the vampires or something. I, I never watched it, but I did see the uh, Tim Burton film uh, with Johnny Depp. I can't remember it really, but you, you're a Dark, Dark Shadows junkie, Charles? I know of the Tim Burton thing you're talking about. I wasn't aware that it, it was a, it was based on something though. Yeah, it's like apparently a popular TV series, like from like our parents' childhood age, mm. like probably like there on TV back then. But yeah, they 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 also have this nice cognac. It was a birthday present for Maurice to Maggie, so they're getting ready to pour some of that, and they sit down on the couch to get more comfortable. Of course, the couch is sealed in plastic. Also, she does have a couch. It's not like she does maybe. I don't know. Did she get rid of a couch? Uh, they're sitting on a chair now with plastic. It's definitely a couch that they're yeah. sitting on. Maybe this is like a newer couch that she got and she put plastic over it. Right. Joel says, is that eternity? No, actually, it's Kalish. I, they're talking about perfumes, I'm assuming. Uh, long, awkward pause. How does this break down? Because it's, it's been a couple days since I watched this episode. I have my notes, but how do you... How would you explain it's essentially the, the, that. the like, succession of events here? Yeah, so you're pretty much on track right there. The only thing that happens is that Joel kind of leans in to try to seal the deal, tries to kiss her, <laughs> and then Maggie imagines all of these uh, these mites that are populating both on her and on Joel. And so she gets the feeling that it's dirty, like it's incredibly wrong, and she can't go through with it. Yeah, it's kind of abrupt the way it happens because, um, as you said, like he gets closer and it seems like they're very comfortable. I think Joel is even talking about like, 
he's trying to assuage her fears and sort of like be like, you know, we're all just part of one big giant ecosystem. And it really does actually seem from the performance, it seems that Maggie is actually kind of comforted by what Joel's saying. Like, she's like, oh, great. Like it's, she's, she's in a place now where she can talk about that and not have like a anxiety or a panic about it. But um, yeah, something happens. Maybe Joel gets a little too close. And as you said, she imagines these, um, like we get like a very intense zoom in. The music that's playing is like this intense drumming that literally just kicks in immediately with these microscopic images of like bacteria, dust mites, as you said, and Maggie sends Joel away. This reminds me a lot actually of Maggie's um, interactions with Mike Monroe in season four, where just like at at the flip of a switch, she's like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And like, she's like, has to distance herself. (laughs) Yeah, she's got, there's definitely a lot of intimacy problems with Maggie. Um, I mean, with Joel and Maggie, but yeah, we see this happening a lot. So that's basically it, right? She just kind of sends him away. Yeah, essentially. She leaves off in a panic, even though it's her house. Oh, so she leaves. (laughs) Yeah, Joel's still on the couch, but presumably, you know, Joel leaves. And then we get to the next scene, which is going to be at Joel's office. And Maggie is... I think I think it's in medias res because I want to say that Joel's telling Maggie like uh, it's there's nothing there like it's um you're imagining it I, I would see it and to prove his point he has like this microscope and they're right. looking through it to try to find signs of mite being on her but Maggie says like no they've like burrowed deep inside me they're, they're oh, not yeah. you can't see it with your eyes but I can feel it and that's why I've been itchy and Joel says like no you're the cause of this rash. You're causing itchiness because you believe that they're there. It's kind of like a never-ending cycle. Yeah, it's a, some like severe paranoid, um, exhibiting signs of paranoia, I guess. You know, she had brought him a sample of like some fibers or something that uh, she claims to have actually seen the dust mites. But yeah, you got to get a, get a microscope out and look at that. Joel even says, you know, you don't have dust mites boring under your skin because like the only the only thing in this hemisphere... Um, the only insect or whatever that could bore under your skin is scabies. And I know you don't have those just because like he would be able to tell like pretty clearly if she had um, scabies. So what is it? He says, actually, there's a name for what's going on. It's delusions of parasitosis. Um, and he says, you have to realize these fears are irrational. Okay. Yeah. That really reminded me of this passage from um, Turtles All the Way Down from John. And the book is basically about this girl who suffers from uh, this overbearing anxiety because she believes that she has, at any moment, she could have C. diff, which is like this disease of this bacteria that like eats you from the inside out. Mm. It's absolutely horrendous. And she constantly has a fear of having it. And we see throughout the book how this mental disease kind of takes over her life. And it really reminded me of this with Maggie. Um, There's like a passage that goes like this. Meanwhile, for some reason, I felt a twinge in my stomach, probably just nerves from listening to Dr. Singh talk about dosages. But that's also how C. diff starts. Your stomach hurts because a few bad bacteria have managed to take hold in your small intestine, and then your gut ruptures, and 72 hours later, you're dead. I needed to reread that case study of the woman who had no symptoms, except a stomach ache and turned out to have C. diff. Can't get out my phone right now, though. She'll get pissed off. But did that woman have some other symptom, at least? Or am I exactly like her? 
Another twinge. Did she have a fever? Couldn't remember. Shit. It's happening. You're sweating now. She can tell. Should you tell her? She's a doctor. Maybe you should tell her. My stomach hurts a little, I said. You don't have C. diff, she answered. (laughs) I nodded and swallowed, then said in a small voice, I mean, you don't know that. Aza, are you having diarrhea? No. Have you recently taken antibiotics? No. Have you been hospitalized recently? No. You don't have C. diff. I nodded, but she wasn't a gastroenterologist, and in a way, I literally knew more (laughs) about C. diff than she did. Almost 30% of people who died of C. diff didn't acquire it in a hospital, and over 20% didn't have diarrhea. Dr. Seen returned to the medication conversation, and as I half listened, I started thinking I might throw up. My stomach really hurt now, like it was twisting in on itself, like the trillions of bacteria within me were making room for a new species in town, the one that would rip me apart from the inside out. The sweat was pouring out of me. If I could just confirm that case study, Dr. Karen Singh saw what was happening. Should we try a breathing exercise? And so we did, inhaling deeply and then excelling, as if to flicker the candle but not extinguish it. She told me she wanted to see me in 10 days. You can kind of measure how crazy you are based on how soon they want to see you back. <laughs> Last year, for a while, I'd been at eight weeks. Now, less than two. On the walk from her office to Harold, I looked up the case report. That woman? She did have a fever. I told myself to feel relieved, and maybe I did for a little while, but by the time I got home, I could hear the whisper starting up again that something was definitely wrong with my stomach since the gnawing ache wouldn't go away. I think, you will never be free from this. I think, you don't pick your thoughts. I think you are dying and there are bugs inside of you that will eat through your skin. I think and I think and I think. And I really like that passage. Basically, it's just going through Aza's mind of how she is thinking. And she's constantly in a fear of this bacteria that's growing inside her. In the same way that Maggie right now is having this uh, existential fear that like, She's not really in control of herself. It's like the bacteria inside of her. It's the millions of microscopic things that she can't see that are causing her problems to manifest in this way. Put it another way, she's not really in control of her life. Those things inside of her, that's what's really driving the vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, that that passage is a great sort of like first person view. You're like really in in the head of this person and you can understand and kind of kind of see that perspective. And yeah, it's a good point you you make with Maggie. It's like she's not in control of it. You know, she, her her attempts to vacuum and the dehumidifier and the plastic over the couch, this is all like attempts to eradicate and control this infestation as she would say of dust mites, but as Joel says, it's what is I love how he says it's just the cost of doing business on the planet Earth. Like we we're constantly surrounded by these and it's part of it's part of life because it's sort of a giant ecosystem that all lives together and off of itself but i guess the problem arises here when it actually causes these this wheezing symptom with maggie but it's not something we can't handle it's just like i guess maggie learning this new truth is is what fuels these thoughts that maybe we can compare to this turtles all the way down passage, like these sort of the cycle of thoughts that keeps um, 
circling around and building sort of like a, a pile, a giant um, stack of paranoia in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's called Turtles All the Way Down. It just spirals <laughs> and goes and keeps going all the way, all the way down. So we can pick back in by looking at the scene where Maggie is being introduced to Chris's art piece. Mm. It, it's covered by a cloth. He's waiting to reveal it. And Chris is going on the spiel about how he was looking at April and she was so amorphous and he couldn't really capture her, like her spirit. It, it just, it was intangible to him. But then he had this brilliant idea to be like, wait a second, I don't need to capture what's there. I can capture what's not there. It's kind of like the idea of going through negative space whenever you're painting or drawing. You're kind of just using what's um, what we perceive to be there, but then you inverse it. So what I mean by all this is that Chris doesn't have a statue of April anymore. He has a statue of a mite. Yeah, a giant metal dust mite sculpture. And, you know, he brought Maggie there because he says, you know, after after I had that talk with you, that's that's what clicked it for me. Like, I couldn't have finished the sculpture unless I had talked with you, Maggie. And, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't think about that, but it is sort of like, you know, well, April says, uh, I'm what you don't see. I'm implied in the sculpture. Because Maggie's like, I thought it was supposed to be you, April. She's like, no, I'm implied. But, yeah, it's it's the the negative space around April is surrounded by all these, you know, millions of dust mites, perhaps. Maybe that's what we're implying. But also, Chris does compare just humanity to being a dust mite. Because isn't our, like, existence, like, dirty and filthy? He says, I like how he says, you know, life's dirty and unclean and it never gets any cleaner. You know, dust to dust, cradle to grave, you know, or whatever. It's like, you know, we're, we're born into filth and we die, like, uh, worm food or something. So uh, it's a very uh, exaggerated statement, but I can totally see the track that his mind is going on. Yeah. I like that he also points out um, another work of art. He says, Brancusi's Bird in Space. I also looked that one up and it's really cool. It's sort of like a, it's a sculpture of just sort of maybe like a elongated, um, now I don't know what it was carved in, but you know, just an elongated piece and and it's not supposed to look like a bird, but you know the title, the bird in flight. You know, Chris says he didn't he didn't do the bird; he did the bird in flight, the state of that bird flying. And it kind of looks just like a smear, almost as if you're like trying to photograph a fast moving object or something. Pretty cool, pretty cool idea. Where you know it's it's an elegant piece of sculpture, but then just giving it that title as well, you can see like the intention. It's like wow. Right. So like Chris couldn't capture the spirit of April, but he can capture the spirit of what he just tried to grab onto. So like yeah. imagine Chris is reaching out with his hand and he tries to grab her and then she leaves or she disappears, she poofs, whatever. That's what he's grabbing onto. Like nice. that, that essence right there. Uh, to build on that metaphor that Chris is using that like we're all incredibly dirty and stuff, the might itself may serve no real purpose, but the bacteria in our body does. You need those bacteria. The human body cannot exist without all of that bacteria within ourselves. They serve a purpose. I'm not saying every single one does. Obviously, there are dangerous ones that enter into us. But on a whole, we need to have that in order to proceed on living. So if we took that as an analogy, we can say, like, you need to be dirty in order to survive. 
Yeah, and I think it I think it's Joel that says the whole ecosystem idea of it, but again, I'm not like a scientist, so I don't know, but I would assume that the dust mite plays some important role in the ecosystem of bacteria and these arachnids as they call them that are living on our body, like the whole ecosystem that keeps keeps us rolling and functioning and moving. But they do kind of touch on this idea, the whole the whole big picture ecosystem of it. But before we get there, we actually get a dream sequence. Of course, Northern Exposure have to have our dream sequences here. Uh, it's Maggie at the brick, and she's sitting next to an anthropomorphic dust mite, like a man in sort of like a dust mite costume. Like he's he's all gray. He's got sort of like a suit on or like a business suit that's dusty, and he's got um, you know like dust mite looking face with a little antenna thing, little little stalks like poking out of his face, and it's basically just like this dust mite is just like a guy with some problems. Like he's getting stiffed at work. His son sucks and has no true calling in life or whatever. Like his son is bad at, at any sort of vocation. And um, what does he say? Like their host sprayed malathion. Thank God no one was killed, he says. Like, I don't even know what malathion is, but I'm assuming it's something that would kill <laughs> thousands of uh, dust mites. So he's just like, you know, we're supposed to relate to him as just like a bummed guy that's like sitting sitting at the bar. And um, Maggie, I don't actually, so does Maggie have any lines here or is she just listening to him talking? Basically listening. If she does have lines, it's kind of like, you know, the standard like, oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah, like, why are Stuff you here? Like What's go- what is that? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he kind of goes on this long spiel. Uh, I think at the end he says, I wrote this down. Take the good with the bad. Drag yourself out of bed every day. Put two feet in front of the others and go forward. <laughs> so I guess mites, <laughs> uh, dust mites have more feet than than we do. But um yeah. Yeah. It's just another scene demonstrating Chris's point that, like, yeah, we're like gods to the might, and to the actual gods, we're the mites. So, like, there is a, there's an order of priorities of how we perceive things. And it, it's simply on the way that you're looking. And I, I think that idea is really carried forward onto the final scene, which is uh, really, I really appreciated this scene because, um, I feel like it's kind of a return to form in terms of, Ooh. Uh, like, sh- I guess, like on shooting and like how they shot it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we start off and it's Maggie in a wide shot. And she's standing in this middle of nowhere place. It's just sort of like a, um, like a field, but there's like snow. Right. And I wanted to point out that, uh, well, I'm sure you, maybe you're about to say it, but the, um, the colors of this scene and also like how they probably shot to get those colors. Like, so. Yeah. How do they do that? Right. So as you were describing, she's kind of like out in the middle of nowhere in this snowy field. The ground is sort of like a bluish white maybe, or just very blue of the snow, but the sky is like a deep, warm, dark orange. And um, this is achieved literally with a filter, literally with like a piece of glass in front of the lens that has a gradient of color. It's called a gradient filter. So literally on this piece of glass, the top part of the glass is colored, you know, tinted one way. And then it sort of like has a gradient and fades into uh, the other color. So, uh, and you have to frame the camera obviously in such a way to where the horizon or, you know, whatever part of the frame that you want colored orange, like the sky 
uh, appears at the top of the filter there. And there's a couple different lens lengths that they shoot at. Like obviously we get the very wide shot with um, the snow on the ground being blue and the sky being orange. And we get some closer shots, but in each one, I think they're using a, a gradient filter to get that effect. I mean, I guess there's a lot of ways you can do that, but um, I mean, they do make gradient filters. So I think this is what they used, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to say so too. I, it kind of gives off the feeling like the film was burnt, like the physical film. That also, I was going to say, so there are a lot of ways you could do this. Like they could have also just color corrected or color timed like a portion of it. Uh, but I, I think the way, since it's so consistently a, a solid line, I don't know. Yeah. I just right. imagine like that's, that is what a gradient filter looks like. You could probably achieve that effect in multiple ways, but I would, if I had to put some money on it, gradient filter. Okay, so like here comes the million dollar question that uh, most people are going to wonder about. Why are they using this? Oh, what is the purpose? Hmm, I don't know. Other than the fact that it looks gorgeous, because it does. Um, what does it say thematically or story-wise? What does it say to have this separation uh, between, like this color separation between the sky and the ground? Hmm. I'm not one to normally like think about it in that terms, but I think we got to answer that question now because it because we are focusing on it. What could it possibly mean? Um, well, this scene is you know they're they're talking about this scene is a wonderful scene because like Maggie and Joel get to finally like be like okay like we are doing the clean slate thing we can move forward with our relationship like Maggie's able to push past any of her anxieties about dust mites and they're talking about the. Um, well, Maggie says, you were right, Fleischman. We're all part of one big giant ecosystem. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe is maybe is the color separation supposed to symbolize like a dichotomy between us and like the microscopic and then, but we're all bringing it all together. I don't know. What Do you have any? Inklings? I don't really have a great <laughs> one. Yeah. That's basically my idea as well. So like, it's obviously separating the sky from the land, which are... Two contrasting ideas, yeah. uh, but you need both of them in order to have a planet. <laughs> I If we think about I like the gods so, are up in the clouds, I guess. I'm just trying yeah. to compare it to anything we've mentioned already. There's not a lot of like, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that orange is a prominent color in the today's episode. Hmm. Well, I think you're probably right. I mean, there's definitely... so. The tungsten bulbs of the lamps and Maurice's, uh, so any sort of like nighttime scene is probably orange light, you know? So the way, the way like film stocks were produced or are produced is, uh, they're, you know, they have a certain color balance to them. Like daylight film is made to be shot during, you know, outside during the day and uh, tungsten balanced film is made to be shot inside, um, with, you know, warm lights and uh, if you were to mix the two films up, like if you use daylight film to shoot, you know, inside with the wrong, the, with the light of a different color temperature, it'll be very, very blue, or it might be very, very orange, you know, if you mix them up. So there is like a, you know, blue and orange are, are very prominently featured because that is sort of like the spectrums of the colors of light that we see when we're making movies. So the sun makes blue light. Most of our lamps make orange light. Yeah, it's really popular now in like movie posters at like the beginning of the 2010 decade because your your eyes naturally want to see it. I think there's like another color scheme with the the film studios just don't use it. I forgot so what it is. There's other hues like um green and purple. Like yeah, there we go. In film they call um 
if you're trying to color a light green, you might use like some gels, which are like little pieces of film that you put over the light. Say you have like a um, a light that emits tungsten, like orange light, or maybe you have, even have a light that just emits white light. You cover it with a green gel. Um, if you cover it the purple gel, I believe that's called minus green. So green and minus green. It's not like green or purple. Uh, I wow. thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, you could put any color. It doesn't have to be orange or blue or green or purple. It could be pink or sodium vapor or I think they even call like straws, like another sort of flavor of orange or yellow. I guess maybe it's we can take it as most like straightforward interpretation, which is that this is the scene where Maggie and Joel kiss. It's the scene where mm. she kind of accepts him. So this is where the two contrasting colors finally meet up. Maggie is blue. Joel traditionally wears earthy colors that are, you know, brown. Together, they're finally here. Yeah, honestly, I think that's the best route because this is, it does feel like a very, the way the scene is directed and handled seems like a very important moment. And I mean, it is. It's like, you know, they they kiss each other. It's pretty monumental because we had the whole fourth season to sort of like separate Joel and Maggie and it's a constant will they, won't they. And who knows what's going to happen next week. But it seems like we might be moving in a direction this season where the show's just saying, okay, they're a couple now. Let's see what happens as that moves forward. Right. Big props, man, for this for this scene. Like those wide shots make it look really cinematic. It's a very pretty, yeah. I mean, it's very pretty. Very and well of course, done. The, the 1080 high definition Blu-rays. Very thankful that we're watching that now because I think I think I said it last episode, but I'm just, I'm really seriously always surprised every time I put an episode on. I'm just like, wow, this looks good. <laughs> so Charles, now's the time in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before. Take them and drop them in the right smack dab in the middle of season five, just a random episode and get their thoughts on this episode as a whole, as its own standalone piece, their initial thoughts on the series. Does this episode represent the show well? Just sort of an outsider opinion to hear what they have to say. And this week we've got my friend Amjad. Actually met Amjad through one of our former guests on the podcast, Beal, back from season one. Uh, If you remember, Beal was my old roommate, and Amjad and Beal go way back. So, of course, any friend of Beal's is a friend of mine. And Amjad has proved to be a pretty great guy. Um, very last minute here, he swooped in and watched the episode and provided his commentary. So let's hear what he has to say. All right. So I watched Northern Exposure Season 5, Episode 13. And I got to say, never seen the show before, but overall I thought it was it was good. Uh, I thought it was like warm and cozy, something about like the the cold. I'm not sure if it's in Canada or Alaska or something, but um, everybody seems like super northern and, you know, they all got funny hats and big jackets and stuff. Um, I like that story with the rich guy and the crazy violinist and I feel like we can all relate to all the stories in this show and especially this one where, you know, maybe you get driven to do something you wouldn't do normally for the opportunity and that's that can really come back and bite you in the butt also the the dust mite 
lady freaking out. I was I, I thought that was pretty entertaining too. Although I think she's a little old to be worrying about dust mites. You know, you've kind of learned about that. I think pretty young and how fruitless it all is anyway. Um, also thought it was weird that the uh, doctor guy didn't kind of pick up that it was his dust mite stuff at the worst time when they're trying to be romantic that was freaking her out. Um, yeah, so big, big oversight from the smart guy. Um, I like the, uh, the guy, the, the dad, or not the dad, the, um, husband from my big fat Greek wedding, um, with his, he's got like his art project and uh, I think it's cool. He sounds like he smokes a lot of weed and, you know, probably listens to a lot of fish while he works on stuff and, uh, you know, also the the whole music and aesthetic, it's got that nice, like, it's like 90s or I don't know what, what time time period this is, but, you know, it just seems like it has like a, a bunch of interesting characters, like the uh, general store grandma lady and the uh, future shaman who talked a lot about movies, seems like a kind of dopey, but kind of, kind of nice. So I feel like everybody could, could really, you know, enjoy living in this town with a bunch of these different characters and they all seem to kind of know each other and get along with each other which i which i liked so overall i'd uh i give this one five forks um it was a great episode of northern exposure definitely check the show out again and then um you know just as a response to that question that the prompt you know i think we've all been in very difficult situations and um, sometimes, you know, it, you know, it's, it's good for you. Sometimes you takes a while for you to learn about the, uh, growth that you experienced from it. So, um, you know, I think in particular, um, when I first moved from my like hometown to where, uh, like I lived and went to school and stuff, that was really tough because it sounds cool to move and then you actually do it. And then it actually sucks for a while. And, you want to go home and you don't need friends and things like that. And now I definitely am happy with my life. And, you know, it's crazy to think that if maybe like one month or something was going worse than it was, I might've turned around and, you know, reached for my comfort zone when in reality, I'm probably much happier now having not done that. So the, the, the challenge of overcoming such a hurdle is, is always, um, difficult, but in the end, if it's really meant to be and you, you overcome it, then usually you end up happier than if you had turned around and said no. But yeah, I think I think that'll do it. Good, good job, and happy Mardi Gras. So that's Amjad's thoughts on this episode. Uh, just going to the beginning of his recording, there he said overall. Thought it was good. Very warm and cozy. Something about that cold weather. I don't know. For me, I think cold weather, we talked about this, Charles. We sort of we sort of fantasize about snow and cold weather down here in the South because we don't get it very often. So it's always very, I don't know, magical to see. Um, what did Amjad say? Maybe it's a Canada. Maybe it's Alaska. Pretty close. Yeah, it's, it's in Alaska, a fictional town called Sicily. Um, Sicily, Alaska. And Amjad says, funny hats, big jackets. So we get we get <laughs> strong winter vibes here. Yeah. He mentioned that Chris looks like a person that smokes a lot of weed, <laughs> listens to fish when he's working on stuff. <laughs> we kind of briefly talked about the music that's playing when he's sculpting. It's like weird 
I think I said dad rock. It's like a weird Muzak version of rock and roll, almost like a facsimile of what you would think, like a cool weed smoking uh, Harley Davidson, like motorcycle guy would listen to. But he recognized Chris from Big Fat Greek Wedding, of course. Uh, John Corbett is the actor there. Has it ever been made clear if uh, if Chris smokes weed? It hasn't. I don't think I don't think they talk about weed very much in Northern Exposure at all. I mean, I guess it was the early '90s, so maybe a bit taboo. It's a pretty progressive show, but I bet Maurice has probably talked about like marijuana or reefer. I think they say reefer a, a, a number of times. Say, in Northern yeah, Exposure. they say reefer, but <laughs> it's odd. Like I don't think there's like really. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Other than like medical drugs, is there any usage of? Uh, Drugs at all? Northern exposure? I don't think so. Like, there's definitely alcohol, and there's, uh, you know, cigarettes, cigars, but they don't go too crazy. But I guess, you know, I'm a, I'm assuming it's because this is early, early 90s. I guess now it's 94, right at the beginning of 1994. This episode. Yeah, I'm guessing it was, uh, it's it was to get through the censors. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, you can't, you can't be talking about that <laughs> on CBS. Yeah, true, true. Um, what else does Amjad say? He found it relatable, the um, Ingram, the violinist, someone who's like driven mad, driven to do something you wouldn't normally do, but doing it for the opportunity. That's that's a relatable feeling for Amjad, which <laughs> makes sense. You know, it's like chasing that, chasing that opportunity. Um, in this case, playing that magnificent Guarneri de Gesù violin. Oh, I thought it was really funny how he said... The Maggie's character worrying about the dust mites is probably a little too old to be worrying about dust mites. He was like, normally you learn about that pretty young or whatever. <laughs> a little uh, distant. I mean, it could, have been, it could have been a late allergy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess he just meant like the, you know, understanding that there are all these tiny little creatures and microorganisms. I guess mm. he learned about that in high school and stuff, but I don't know. I mean... You're right about the about this. This is really affecting Maggie's life only now in her adult life. He gave it. Um, he gave the show five forks. Do you now, know what that's in reference to? No. What is what is what is that? So there's this uh, pretty popular podcast called Doughboys, which reviews uh, fast food and chain restaurants, and they rate each restaurant on a fork scale, one to five forks. And I was joking with Amjad before because Amjad is, has been featured on Doughboys. He's, uh, he, he was like a call-in question. Like they took in like call-in questions. I think he went by the name AJ. So like I actually listened to his episode that he, was, that he called in for and I didn't even realize that it was him because he said his name was AJ. What, what was his question? Um, now I'm going to... I'm going to sound really dumb if I'm wrong, but I think he was asking about uh, the best dip for for like tortilla chips. Is it like salsa, guac, something like that? Man, I'm going to feel really bad if I got oh. that wrong. But uh, <laughs> yeah. what was the uh, what was the answer to that? Do, do you remember? Honestly, I don't really remember, but I do remember all of the hosts being like, "Easy, man! It's like guac or something." You know, it's like, but. I mean, I think I think most people would say, okay, I don't even know if this is his question, but just taking this question out of context, if it's Amjad yeah, yeah. or not, 
I think guac is like the crowd favorite. Like that's the most um, luxurious, like expensive and just like tasty dip. But I mean, you can't just like write off salsa either or queso, you know? But I, I feel yeah. like in response to his question, they were like, wow, what a dumb question. Like easy, it's guac or something like that. I don't know. I think that's like <laughs> totally, pr- like, okay, it's undeniable that like if you ask like which one's the most expensive, it's definitely guac. Like, yeah, yeah that's for sure the most expensive. But I don't know. I'm pretty sure I would go for queso, queso most of the time. Yeah, it'd be like queso, then guac, and and then salsa. Are we missing like a fourth one, or is there is there only three? I don't know. I guess there's bean dip too. That's true. Oh yeah, yeah. bean dip. Bean dip really is. Uh, yeah, hang on. That was like this is only <laughs> gonna on. make this, sense this to like mixes it up a bit. Yeah, I don't. This is only gonna make sense to like me, me and Lee. But like, I remember there was like one time. Uh, we were meeting up with a mutual friend, Addy. We had talked. Not that we're talking Addy about has Addy. appeared so much on this podcast lately. He, yeah. he, well, he he is confirmed. We talked about this earlier. How he could have liked that variation of what? What are you talking about? Oh, the Glenn. Yeah, the Glenn Gould. During the recording of this uh, podcast, before Amjad's segment, we talk about the Glenn Gould um, Goldberg variations. And uh, I was like, I bet I heard this before because I'm sure Addy, you know, introduced me to this. In fact, he did. I shared the clip with him uh, that you heard earlier in the podcast. And he was like, yeah, this is top 10 music for me. <laughs> yeah, he he loved it. Anyway, uh, I remember one time we were like all hanging out. I think Addy wanted like bean dip. Yes. Like I really bad. This. I remember us. Yeah. I have pictures of pretty- this and it's quite disgusting looking, <laughs> but it tasted really good. It was like microwave, tin can. Bean dip, but like right? the Lay's, like the Lay's bean dip. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope I'm right about that being Amjad's question. But uh, I think if I had to answer that, I got to say salsa. I mean, I think I might enjoy guac, especially if it's really good. I might enjoy it more. But salsa is just like the tried and true. You'll always get that with chips. Well, back to uh, back to yeah. Amjad's commentary. Five forks to the show. I appreciate the uh, Doughboys reference there. Uh, he did answer our question, which typically we'll ask every guest if they, you know, if they can think of an anecdote, if they can answer this question. The question is: um, Have you ever been in a place where you felt stuck, um, and maybe um, you learned something from being in that position about yourself? Just you know, something gained from being out of your comfort zone, very much like Joel Fleischman, you know, this transplant from New York in this small town of Sicily, Alaska. And Amjad, I think his, uh, his, his feelings are pretty close to Joel here. He said like when he first moved away from his hometown, you know, it sounds like a pretty cool idea. Like you get to move away from this crappy town that you've grown up in. Uh, but he says, actually it sucks at first, you know, you don't really have a lot of friends. You got like it's hard to really set set up your your roots, I guess, in your new your new location. Um, and he thought about the idea, like you know, maybe it's possible I could have had a really bad month somewhere in there and just moved back home to my comfort zone. And he's glad he didn't. He says, uh, in the end, if it's really meant to be, you'll end up happier, you know, that you stayed there. So you know, knock on wood, I think it's a lot like uh, Joel Fleischman at this point. I'm sure there's part of Joel that wants would want to go back to New York, but it's been quite a few episodes since we've seen Joel talk about New York or uh, romanticize or have like feelings of longing for New York in a while. 
All right, that's going to wrap it up for Amjad. Amjad, thank you so much for coming on on such short notice, and a happy Mardi Gras to you too. Yeah. Lee, what do we got next week? Next week, we've got season five, episode 14. It's called A Bolt from the Blue. A Bolt from the Blue. What could that mean, Charles? Oh, man. Well, I mean, they've been pretty on the nose (laughs) recently. So I guess it's going to be like, sudden inspiration i'm not even gonna try to dig deep and be like oh it's like a thunderstorm or like a deadbolt i mean like literally just like an idea that comes to let's say pick a character let's <laughs> pick a character else yeah we already we already focused on maurice so i guess we're <laughs> we had chris today too Let, let's flip it on to flip it on to ed we haven't yeah. had him do something in a while <laughs> we need another ed episode he's been like sort of like on the sidelines lately um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say you got some, some accuracy there, but we'll have to talk about that next week. Um, Charles, I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork, and thanks to Amjad for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.